Well, there you go. I want to speak to you today on a part of the Bible that maybe nobody has ever spoken to you from. It's one of those parts of the Bible that if you were to read it, you would sort of say, why did God allow this to be put in his holy book? You know, there are some parts of the Bible that I sometimes get a bit sort of confused about. I think they're just long lists of names. What's inspiring about that? You know, if I was writing a holy book, I'd just make sure that every single word was just dripping with all kinds of anointing. But sometimes there are parts of the Bible where so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. You read those parts of the Bible and you sort of think, why did all of this go in? Well, actually, when you study the Bible, you realize it's very important because the Bible is a serious collection of historical facts that are combined together in the plans of God for all eternity. And I wish I had time to explain all of that. But in the New Testament, there's one of those kind of list chapters, and it's found in the book of Romans chapter 16. Now, Romans is a very well-used book of the Bible, but Romans 16, not so much. And so I read it and reread it and kind of thought, this is unusual that there are all these long lists of names. Is there anything that we can learn from them? And so just to sort of help you see how many names there are, I'm not going to read it all, but let me at least sort of show you that I've read them because some of these names take a little bit of tongue twisting to get them out. Uh, Romans chapter 16. Look here, right in verse 1, it speaks about Phoebe, a servant of the church in St. Crea. Then in verse 3, there's Priscilla and Aquila. they well known from the book of Acts, of course. They risked their lives. And then over in verse 5, it speaks about Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Six is easy, that's Mary. Seven is Adronicus and Junius, my relatives. Uh, verse 8 is Ampliatus, 9 is Urbanus, and my dear friend Stachus, and 10 is Apelles, and then uh, at the end of 10 there's Aristobulus, and then Herodian, and Narcissus, and Tryphena, and Tryphosa, and Persis, and Rufus, and Asyncritus, and Phlegon, and Hermes, and Patrobus, and Hermes. Are, are you impressed yet? I, I mean, that's a big list of difficult names to read. And it goes all the way down to the end of the chapter where we have what is a very familiar kind of literary uh, uh, form, and that is a doxology, a, a song of worship, a declaration of praise. And it speaks there in verse 25, to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of mystery hidden for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings, by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him, to the only wise God be glory forever. Amen. Romans is a very serious book and a very necessary book. It's uh, probably the greatest theological thesis that's ever been written. It's foundational in many ways to a whole lot of theological thought that has been part of the church's activity over the last 2,000 years. Very serious, very important, very thorough. It's theological in its content. And so it takes some reading and it takes some understanding. And it's written in quite a forthright kind of manner. I think Paul, who wrote it, must have felt very responsible to try and get some fundamental teaching out, to lay it down, line upon line, to establish stuff that would help us all the way through the years that have been since, to establish good thought, good ideas, and good doctrine. So it's a very thorough book of theology. 
And then you get to 16, the last part of it, and it's like it all changes. It turns around completely, and instead of this very kind of austere, thorough, theological writing, you suddenly find there's this very kind of personable writing. Paul gets quite emotional. He gets quite nostalgic. And he starts to speak about people. He speaks about relationships. And you can almost feel the lump in his throat and the kind of beat of his heart as he writes about these people who have crossed his paths during his life, especially this group that were meeting in the church at Rome. And he writes gently about them. And he remembers them, this sort of nostalgic part. And the reason for that's a very good reason because Paul knew very well when he wrote this that literally at any point in any day there could come a knock on the door and Roman soldiers would drag him away to what he knew would be a painful and a horrible death. And that in fact did happen. Paul was later martyred for his faith. So this was kind of a time, almost between time and eternity, and Paul writes about these people who had come into his life, and he does so in a very tender and special way. So once I started to get that and understand that, I started to process it a bit more, and I'd go through it line and line again, and I would read all these names, and it wasn't long before a number of things kind of jumped off the page at me, and they related to how we live in the 21st century, stuff that we need to understand and know. And so let me share a few things with you today about this list of names found in Romans chapter 16. Here are some things that you need to know about it, and I hope it'll help you and encourage you. The first thing is this. When you read this, name, this list of names, it's quite interesting to discover that there's a huge diversity of names. Lots of different names. In fact, there are 30 names or 29 names that are listed here. And out of the 29 names, there is a whole list of different kinds of people, different kinds of backgrounds. For example, right in the middle of this list, there are 10 who are women. 10 out of the 29, that's more than a third of this list that Paul's writing about tenderly with reflection. At least 10 of them are women. Now you say, big deal, absolutely big deal. This was real big deal. Remember, Paul came out of a pharisaical background. He had grown up, friends, in a world that was very biased against women. In fact, you might not know this, but a good Pharisee, every morning that they woke up, they would stand at the side of their bed, they'd look towards heaven, and and this is the first prayer any Pharisee would pray first thing in the morning. They would look heavenward and they say, thank you, God, I was not born a Gentile nor a woman. I mean, that's how deeply ingrained this bias was. He was a chauvinist of the highest order. And then Christ entered his life. And his journey began to change. And something changed in the chemistry of his soul. And it is important and it is strategic and it is noteworthy that out of this list, all the way back 2,000 years ago, Paul had got over the gender issue in terms of life in church. And at least a third of this group, many of whom he calls co-workers and fellow laborers and special people in the call of Christ, they are women. So unpackage that, but it's an important thing to know. 
note that Paul had at least 10 out of this list who were women. And then we know that there were North Africans. We know that there was Priscilla and Aquila who came from Alexandria, the great city on the southern Mediterranean coast. And so they represented a whole continent in some ways. There were people who probably came from a little bit further south than that into what was known as Ethiopia at the day. And, and then we also know that there were people from Asia Minor. There were people from Greece and the, the Grecian world was well represented. It's all there in the names. In fact, Rome, friends, was no different to any modern major city in the world. You might think that migration and immigration is a brand new thing. It's been happening for centuries. It's always happened. People have always moved around the planet and they gather in cities and they come together in these cosmopolitan hubs and that's often where a grace work is done. And here we find this church, a whole hodgepodge, if you like, of different people who look different. Many of them spoke different home languages, but they were all found in the body of Christ in this church in Rome. And I don't know about you, but that makes my heart celebrate, you know, that this great gospel that we preach, it's not defined and refined and confined to just a few little people who look like us and act like us and think like us. It's good news for everyone, everywhere, in all nations, at all times, and it's always been that way, and it should still be that way. This church of ours, friends, is not some confined little club of people. It's a gathering of diverse people from all over the globe who celebrate Jesus and come together in in his name. And that's an important declaration to make from time to time. Thank God you've been brought into the life of the church. Thank God you've been grafted into this body of people. Because friends, we're different to any other gathering of people anywhere in the planet. We are the body of Christ called, set aside. And right now all over the world, there are people who don't have to dress in certain ways or learn new kinds of language or act of some kind of cultural background. They have been brought to faith in Christ and they live out their lives with this new life that Jesus has given them. That's a really exciting thing. This church was full of diverse people from different backgrounds. Did you get it? Understand what I'm saying? Really important. Here's another thing that sort of really stands out to me as I read these uh, verses together. And not only is there this huge kind of uh, diversity of names, but it's also interesting that at this stage in the apostle's life, he's got these cherished relationships, these kind of special friendships. You know, he speaks about all kinds of people in this group. Uh, for example, he speaks here about people who are his brother and sister. Well, they're obviously not his biological brother and sister. So what's he talking about? He's talking about people who have come into a relationship in faith, and actually Paul relates to them as family. I mean, all the way back there, they already understood that. I remember when I first became a Christ follower, I'd get into church and people would refer to each other as brother and sister, and either it was just a little bit weird, but actually it's been like that for decades, for centuries, for millennia. We come into a relationship that's family, and we ought to, keep that. you know, that's why if you get hurt in church, it's like a double whammy. You know, we shouldn't hurt each other. We should actually treat each other as family. There should be something about our relationships that are really special and cherished. And here's Paul at the end of his life, and he's reflecting, and you hear the tenderness. You get his heart. He's grateful that he's in a family with brothers and sisters. 
I remember when Carol and I first went to college. We went to college in London. And I remember before we started, we associated with a great church in London called Kensington Temple. And the youth in that church would go out and preach in the open air. And we would go on out and preach together. And it was pretty scary. I'd never done it in my life. I'd never preached before, let alone in the open air. And one of the places we'd go was a place called Tower Hill. If you've ever been to London, just across the way from the ancient Tower of London, which was built by William the Conqueror after the Battle of Hastings in 1066. And uh, it's a kind of infamous place. That's where a lot of people were burned at the stake or they lost their heads. And it was a place of execution and kind of to remember how many people had given their lives. It's now a place where anybody can go and say kind of anything. So it's like an open area where you can sit, like Speaker's Corner over in Hyde Park. So we had gone out, and if you've ever been to those places, you'll know that there are always two groups of people. There are people that are saying what they want to say, and then there's another group called hecklers. Anybody know what hecklers are? You know, I mean, it's a kind of a sport for them out there, to be honest. You know, some people play rugby and cricket in England. Uh, you don't know what all those cultured games are, but uh, um, anybody know what rugby is? Oh, good. There's some uh, informed people. It, you know, it, it's football for real men. That's what rugby is. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so um, these hecklers, it's like their sport. They come out there. There was this one guy who had like a Sherlock Holmes pipe, and he would take a big draw on it and blow smoke in the face of whoever was speaking. Very intimidating. And some of them are really funny. I mean, they've got this sharp sense of humor. And I was out, and there was a young man who came from uh, Asia somewhere, had very uh, Asian features. And so he stood up. It was one of his first times ever. And he's talking away, Jesus loves you, and Jesus died for you. And as he's doing it, this guy's taking puffs on his pipe, and he's blowing smoke in this poor young man's face and just distracting him completely. And a few minutes into what he had to say, he lost it. He just couldn't continue his train of thought. So he's sort of standing there, lost for words. The next thing he says, uh, 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 my brother's going to come. And he points right at me. Here I am. I had blonde hair in those days, blue eyes, you know, looking anything but Asian in my origin and so I get up and this guy looks at him and he looks at me looks at him look, he says doesn't look much like your brother mate he goes you know and that's all I needed in fact I think it was the first time ever that I felt the anointing of God on my ministry I pointed right back on that man's nose I said sir that is where you are entirely wrong I said this young man is more my brother than any biological brother I might have we're born of the same father we have the same life flowing through us we have got the same DNA implanted within our spirits we love God we're in the same family this young man sir is my brother man nearly swallowed his pipe. I'll never forget it, you know. It was a great moment. But uh, it's true. We are family. We're brothers. He speaks about his first convert. You know, here I am, 40 years into Christian ministry. I can remember back to the first people I led to Jesus. I remember once I was preaching in church passionately. And as I'm preaching, somebody just over on my left, he jumps up, scares the life out of me, shouts out, excuse me, he says. I said, what, what? He says, are you telling me that's all I need to be saved? What a moment. I mean, that's what preachers live for, right? So it's like the whole congregation disappeared. I looked straight back to him. I said, sir, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Are you ready to be saved? And he looked back at me with trembling lip, and it was obvious the Spirit of God was convicting me. He said, I'm ready. I want to give my life to Jesus. And so I forgot that there were about 380 other people in church that night. I just shared with him. I said, 
He wants to be the Lord, the leader of your life. And I led him to Jesus publicly. And all these years later, not only is he saved, but his household. In fact, his son-in-law just about two months ago was elected to the highest office in the country in the opposition party in South African government. And I'm daring to believe that in two electoral cycles, that young man will become the president of South Africa. Born again, one of my students, I'm glad to say. But it's wonderful. My first convert. I'm, no wonder Paul felt exactly that way. He speaks here about his mother. That's what church is all about. It's, it's, you know, there is generational reality and connectedness in church that you really find nowhere else. So I don't know about you, friends, but I hope you're getting this this morning. Celebrate the fact that we're not only part of a diverse group of people, but we're brought into special relationships and good friendships. Do you cherish those? Are you committed to the well-being of your fellow congregants this morning? I hope so. And then as I wrap it up, there's another intriguing thing about Romans 16, this completely different part of the book of Romans. And it's this, it's all for one purpose. Everything. Paul's writing about friends. He's talking about all these people. He's talking about this gathering in the city of Rome. And, but he makes it clear as he concludes his theological thesis, speaks tenderly about people. Actually, at the end of it all, there's only one reason. It's that the mystery that was hidden for a long time, now made known, should be preached to all nations everywhere and that Christ would be honored and his name made great. Is that why we gather? Is that what gets us up in the morning? Does that fill our priorities? Does that affect our choices? Is our debt burden conditioned by a deep desire that all nations everywhere, our priorities, our use of time, our investment in technology, are all of those things, our commitment to our marriages, are all those things conditioned by this one great high call that's upon our life? I, just asking. I remember uh, we would put our kids in one of these stories, I'm sure is in one of our books, but uh, we, um, we, we would put our kids to sleep most nights and uh, there would be the sound of witch doctor's drums not far from us. And I remember our little daughter, she was nine at the time. She was really anxious. She said, Mommy, where are those drums beating? And the next morning I went to breakfast. Carol had one of those determined looks on her face that I had already known as a young husband. wasn't worth uh, trying to dissuade her at all. And um, that uh, every now and again, yes, darling, are really wise words for any husband to say. She said, I'm going to find where those drums are beating. I said, yes, darling. And uh, she took off that morning as I went off to the office. When I came back to lunch, I ran down the stairs to our house, looked into the kitchen where there was normally a lovely lunch set, and she hadn't done it that day. I'm wondering where she is. And I looked straight ahead to our living room, and Carol was literally in the fetal position, bundled up, and I thought she'd been attacked. I was very concerned. I ran up. I put my arm around her. I said, what's happening? And tears streaming down her face. Her cheeks were wet. She said, Paul, we've got to do something just got to do something. I said, what? She said, I never found the witch doctor's drums. Never did. I said, I'll tell you what I found. I found five-year-olds looking after their two-year-old siblings for 10 hours a day while their parents are looking for work. She said, I found six-year-olds with babies strapped to their backs with no adult supervision. 
and her heart was broken. She said, I've got to do something. Well, we did. She found a primitive little church. And politics was very rough in those days. Her life was threatened, but she gathered six kids that first day. The second day, there were about 12. The third day, there were nearly 20. By the end of the week, she was cramming 80 and then 160 children into that place. Some of them, it was the first time they'd had any running water go through their fingers. They were deprived in a century. Where she cared and loved with just one other co-worker. We found farmers who gave us boxes of bananas that were too old to go to market. And Long story, and it spawned multiple ministries that touched tens of thousands of children today. It's all for one purpose. We've got to hear the drums beating and serve Christ. I challenge you today, love his church, love each other, and let's be committed to touching our world. Amy, thanks for your welcome. You've looked after us great. God bless you.